Lord, we thank you for the wonderful truth of your word. We thank you that you have blessed us by giving it to us, by preserving it for us in, in uh, a language that we can read and understand. Father, we thank you too that you've given us your spirit that helps us to understand what you are saying to us and indeed helps us to live according to the commands of your word. Father, we pray that as we come to this time that you might open our hearts to the truth, that you might allow us to uh, be able to put away all of the the confusions and the struggles of the world around us so that we might focus upon you and, and what you would have us learn today from your word. And Father, we pray too that as we leave this place, we might not leave this message of your word behind, but that we might take it in our hearts and that it might transform us into new beings that we might serve you with a new joy and a new desire to bring glory and honour to your name. And so now, Lord, we commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I enjoyed seeing the bubble, bubble, bubble bit. Um, the Catherine, that was very, very cute. Uh, and it was interesting uh, hearing Catherine say, well, we're going to get a bit more serious now. It's always good to have a bit of humour in place, isn't it? To you know, be light-hearted and enjoy each other's company. Uh, but the tone of this passage is somewhat serious. So if you've got your sermon outlines there in front of you, that'll help you, so you'll know when I'm going to finish. The limits of God's patience, Amos 5 and 6. Why does some news get our attention more than others? Why does that happen? From time to time... Some headlines really get people talking, don't they? Headlines like, scientists agree global warming is worse than expected. Or bank closures in the US said to have a domino effect. Or Treasury predicts recession to deepen next year. Headlines like these things can bother us because they can strike a bit of fear into us about what maybe is coming just around the corner, either in our lives or in the world or in our superannuation. And when journalists write about things that frighten us, uh, they try to not only get our attention, they're trying to sometimes galvanise people into action, and that action might even just be to go and buy a few more newspapers. But people might even go and buy some newspapers when they read some serious headlines because there's a proverb we're reminded of that says, A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. So people are keen to find out how can they avoid this trouble. And we might get frightened of some things, but I've noticed that the fear of God is not something that we hear a lot about these days, is it? When was the last time that you heard somebody talking about the fear of God? Last time I heard somebody mention the fear of God, it was a, it was a student teacher uh, preparing... Well, she, a, a student teacher actually made an announcement to her class that she was going to give them a topic test. That put the fear of God into them, she said. 
finally glad that she hit on a teaching strategy that somehow had a bit of an impact in the class. But it's doubtful that she really had much idea about what she was saying in actual fact. For her, it was just a good little bit of dramatic language, something that you know you say off the cuff, and I took it for what it was. But the uh, news that's coming to the people of Israel from Amos uh, is really a little bit more serious than a trivial topic test coming up to put the fear of God in them. And the difference is that uh, Amos really was trying to put the fear of God into the people of his time. And as we read God's word, we ought to be struck by a, a renewed sense of the fear of God in our lives as well. Many people are familiar with the verse that says, God is love, but that's not all there is to be said about God, is it? Uh, some people are less acquainted with the verse that says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, in Hebrews 10.31. And it's a frightening thing if we stop to dwell on that for a, for a while. Think about what that means. Well, Amos is here putting the fear of God back into the people of Israel because they failed to fear God in a number of ways. And we can learn from some of their failures. And so we'll turn to the first one now and ask, start by asking, what are the lessons for us from Israel's failure? That's the first point you're out with. What are the lessons for us from Israel's failure? Well, they failed mainly in two areas, in their, in their behaviour and in their attitudes. And the first thing that we notice is that they set their own terms for worshipping in God. So if you look at me at chapter 5, verse 4 and 6, we'll pick it up there. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel and do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he'll sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour... And Bethel will have no one to quench it. We also find that the practice of um, worshipping God is criticised by Amos as well in chapter 5, 21 to 27. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years into the desert, O house of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I'll send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Now Scott mentioned in uh, the sermon on Amos chapter 4 that there were some competing places for the people to worship. These places, Bethel, Gilgal and Beersheba were sort of sacred sites. Some of the patriarchs that had visited there and uh, they became renowned for the promises of God to the people of Israel. But we find at the start of Amos that the Lord rules from Zion like a lion. Or like a raging storm, he's thundering from Jerusalem. Why is it that he's thundering from those places? Well, it's because God has chosen to situate his the copy of his heavenly throne room 
which is the temple in Jerusalem. All the land was God's, but as the king, that was his special place in amongst the midst of his people. And he had gone to great lengths to provide a way for the people to maintain their relationship with him. To deal with their sin through the sacrificial system, so that they could actually worship God. And so God set the terms for how he was going to be approached, and for how the people were to worship him. But they chose instead to uh, dethrone God as God. And they set up their own way in which they'd come and approach God. And so in a lot of ways they've just said, well look, we're king and God can fit in with us. And so they had their little ceremonies with the their golden bulls at Bethel. And this was uh, the king Jeroboam who brought this in and the other kings in Israel followed suit. But still today even people think that they can come to God on their own terms. And they might expect God to answer their prayers when they say things, pray for things that are beyond their reach. Lord God, I pray that my team will win. Or when they are frightened, like the prayer of unbelief that's from the soldier who prays, Dear God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have a soul. And so people presume that they can actually come to God. But the question is, does God really hear those prayers? Does he answer those kinds of prayers? Well, God's word reminds us that we, we can only go, come to God, God his way. We can only come to God his way. And we first need a saviour. And that's what we're reminded of in John 3.36 when we're told that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son won't see life, but God's wrath remains on him. People can't presume just to turn up to God and think all's well because God's wrath remains on them without a saviour. Well, Angus continues on by exposing the legal corruption and the social injustice that characterised the way of life for the people of Israel. We pick it up in chapter 5, verse 7. Turn to that. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground, or, or cast the righteous to the ground, could be another translation. He who made Pleiades and Orion, which is the stars, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Well, Amos lived in a pretty prosperous time. Jeroboam II was a king who wasn't a godly king, but he reigned for about 40 years. And during that time, uh, some people did pretty well. We get a picture of this in 4-6. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory, lounge on your couches, you dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David. 
and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest of washings. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. And so there's a lot of people who are enjoying the good life. But how is it that they did so well? Well, the answer is they ripped off the peasants. The, uh, the workers who were the backbone of that society, that nation, when it came to producing enough grain, uh, God had laws set in place so that families would maintain their land through the generations and that people could get their land back. But after a few bad harvests, perhaps due to uh, the lack of rainfall, in terms of God warning his people to come back, some of these people might have gone into debt so that they could buy grain and live. But the debt that they might have had would have had serious interest and some of the people might have been uh, charging rates of interest that were just so high that they couldn't have any chance of getting their family land back. And it seems there's bribery taking place in the courts so as to make sure that the poor part with their land. And there's a, a gap being uh, driven at this time between the rich and the poor and there's a lot more people who are doing, uh, doing it tough as well. Now, as Christians, we're um, not immune to corruption. Some Christians think that uh, now that we're right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, sin is a thing of the past. We don't have to worry about that. That's all behind us. I met a man at Blacktown Station once who tried to persuade me that uh, even the Christian leader that he was giving money to to pay for his private jet that he was, um, he's actually not that sinful anymore. Uh, and it, you know, he's, he's put sin behind him. He's, he's on another plane. Well, that's not really the, uh, the message from the Word of God. Sin's not a thing of the past. Uh, and as Christians, we've got to think about, even in our dealings in commerce, uh, how we can't let sin creep into that. Although not too many of us are bankers, I don't imagine. Um, we're charging exorbitant interest, which was the issue here. We're not charging interest to people and crippling them. We might be people who find it hard perhaps to pay our debts. That could be an issue for us. And I heard from a friend of a man who was in business at a local church who was discouraged because three people in the church successively did not pay their bills. As my friend pointed out to me, he said, three of them at the one church took him down. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but it bothers me. And it seems to me that God doesn't want us to be people who let any debts out remain outstanding. We've got to continue to love our neighbour and do unto others as we would have them do to us. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 13 that we are to let any debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So even as Christians, we've got to continue to make sure we're approach in our business dealings. Now, just to step sideways here for a moment about the structure of the book of Amos. Sometimes it's we get to the middle of a book like this and we get bamboozled by how it all hangs together. So I just want to point out a couple of little uh, sections of structure in the book to help us see the wood for the trees and where things are going. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, we get the word, Hear the word of the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 1, it's hear the word of the Lord. And in chapter 5, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And that section seems to come to an end around verse 17, where we get a new structure with three woes. You can track these now. 5, verse 18, 
Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That's one of the woes. 6 verse 1. There's a woe there. And in the ESV, you won't see it in the NIV, but at 6 verse 4, there's another woe. So we're starting to look at another series of woes. These are judgment oracles. The first thing we're reminded of is that it's not just behaviour that's a problem, it's ungodly attitudes. The first one is that they are blind to their own standing with God. We see that in 5, 18-24. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. Now, although the Israelites had hoped for the day when God would judge the enemies of Israel, the day when God would judge his enemies, and they longed for that time when they'd have rest from their enemies, we get this picked up in Psalm chapter 2 and also in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They've forgotten that God's actually going to judge his enemies. And these people have forgotten that they've fallen so far away from God, they've forsaken God, that they've become his enemies as well. And so when they're saying, I'll oh, be looking forward to the day of the Lord, they didn't realise that their standing with God is now meant that they were going to get cleaned up in that very day. So that's the first point. They were blind to the standing that they had with God at that time. The second point, they had a false sense of security. We see this uh, in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. We find that there's a, a complacency and a security that they've got. But here, this is really just pride that's coming before a fall. If you think about pride coming before a fall, you might think of some politicians and uh, sometimes a bit of pride there, we notice, before they lose an election. Well, some of the wealthy felt pretty confident and secure because they lived in the land and they had land and they had the law of the God, law of God and they had the heritage of being the people of God. But so uh, really a calm before the storm. They got, they got their security in the wrong things. Just thinking of those, that they've got those things didn't mean anything. And we can face um, similar traps as well. What's your security located? And what if God took it away? How would it be then for you? How would it be for me? From time to time I think of the late Christopher Reeve. Do you remember Christopher Reeve who was once Superman? Uh, when I had more hair I watched Superman. And one day unfortunately he fell off a horse and broke his spinal cord and everything in his life was changed forever. And from time to time I wonder how would I fare if that was me? Would I still be confident in the Lord? And it's worth asking ourselves these sort of questions from time to time and think about how much of our self and self-worth is bound up with our own sense of achievement and our own resources, or whether our security is really supremely found in God 
and our confidence is in God. The question also is worth asking because does God need to get our attention by maybe making some changes to our life? Or are we already doing it tough and finding that we're finding it pretty easy to walk with God in trust with Him because maybe God has taken some things from us? The next problem of attitude that these people had was that there was no sorrow or outrage over the situation that they were in. We see that in chapter 6, verse 6. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Here we have an image of people who are enjoying the good life. Lots of wine, luxury lotions. And yet they're so focused on uh, enjoying the good, good life, they've, they've lost sight of the signs of the times, of what's happening around them. They've got tunnel vision for making the most of everything in this life, and they don't grieve over the ruin of their nation. They're not affected by it. They're not stirred in their hearts. All these things are happening in front of them, and it's like water off a duck's back. There's no passion or outrage against uh, the terrible things that are happening. And it's interesting because uh, wealth, we're told in the Bible, is like a two-edged sword, really. On the one hand, it's all God's wealth. He's the giver of all good things. He made a, a creation, we're told at the very start, it's a, it's a very good creation. That he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so, there's nothing wrong with wealth. It's to be enjoyed. But the, there is a problem with it, that it's deceitful. There is so many great things in life that we can enjoy that they can take on a life of their own. I've heard this saying that uh, the things we own can end up owning us. Interesting line, that. I've heard life compared to a box of chocolates by Forrest Gump, but here's another one for us. Life can be compared to a big toy shop, and there's something for everyone at each stage of life. And like my mother used to be in the dress shops, taking so long to get out of the things, well, we can spend a whole lot of time just getting through the toy shop of life that we uh, get so obsessed with all the things in it, we can forget about some of the other things in life that we should be committing ourselves to like Christ's mission. So there's a couple of questions that are worth us wrestling with, and one of them is, could we as individuals and as a church be more gripped by a passion for God? Does it really bother us that our society broadly ignores God? Does that actually affect us in any way? And as Christians, are we looking for opportunities ourselves to help people to come to know Christ? Is that actually uh, something that's at the forefront of our thinking or is it just sort of off to the periphery a bit? Are we, are we looking to help people to come to know Christ and to grow strong and mature in Christ? Well, let's now turn and focus on some of the life, the hope for life that's held out for a remnant of Israel. And the important question for us is uh, point number two in your outline, so if you you're nodding off there, you can uh, turn to point number two and have a look at that. It says, are we holding on to the life that God gives to us? Are we holding on to the life that God gives to us? 
Israel was called back to life with God. It's interesting as we read through Amos, there are there are these laments like, you know, virgin Israel, chapter 5, verse 2, uh, is fallen. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. There we go. She's pictured as a bride who, who dies before her wedding day. And there's nobody interested in her. No one's ready to help her up. There are these kind of uh, sharp references to the coming judgment. But interspersed in uh, chapter 5, we notice other little glimmers of hope uh, and some life language that recalls us back to uh, the life that the people were to have with God from the covenant that he made with them at Moses uh, in Deuteronomy 30. Here's some of these little glimmers of, glimmers of hope they've got. Focus on uh, chapter 5. I look at verse 4. It says, Seek me and live. Chapter 5, verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. And skipping down to verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Verse 15. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. There's a remnant that might experience some mercy. The people are being recalled back to the life language of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. I'll read a little bit of that to you. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he'll give you many years and land you swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, Take to heart all the words I've solemnly declared to you this day. Verse 47, They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By then you'll live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And so in all this we're reminded that life is being held out to the people. They put their trust in God. And we too are called to life with God as well. Paul picks up this life language from Deuteronomy in Romans chapter 10. We're reminded that although none of us are without sin, none of us are perfect, and that we're all rebellious in many ways, God promises us life. And we read that in Romans 10 verse 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Verse 11, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so these things aren't just idle words for us. Next time you find it hard to get out of bed and you ask yourself, is there any hope in life? Well, we need to remember that we do have a saviour and we will be saved. Next time you're discouraged by someone because you've been let down by them or worse still, you've let them down yourselves. We need to remember these words that we will be saved. The troubles of this time, they will pass and God's promising us that times are going to change. And so these words are life. They're not idle. They give us the kind of assurance that we need to have 
that reminds us that we do have a saviour and that one day we will be saved. So we can press on with that hope. But for the people of Amos times, things were pretty dire. Despite the calls to life with God, we're reminded that the tone of the whole book is pretty sobering. Many in Amos' time found the limits of God's patience and we find out about that in chapter 6, verse 14, where we're told that another nation is actually going to rise up against Israel. And that nation was the Assyrians. You can read about this in ancient history. They were, very, they were dreadful, actually, in the things that they did to try to put their pictures up so that people got such a fright that they decided to capitulate before they even got to their, their village. They sort of really give up. Uh, and the Assyrians were experts. And so that's actually borne out in history. This, this uh, prophecy in 6.14 that another nation will come through and punish the people of Israel. Now, it's true that God's patience had limits for Israel, but the question is how are we going to respond to that lesson? At the start of this talk, I reminded us that uh, we could probably do with a renewed sense of the fear of the Lord uh, within us the fear of God in our lives. And, and Paul thinks that the people of his time uh, deserve to have a bit of the fear of the Lord put in them as well. This is what he said in Romans chapter 11. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid. Here we go. The fear of God in them. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he's talking about the people of Israel in the past, he will not spare you either. Well, there's a shock. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. So there's the challenge. And so today, the take-home message really is that we might be people who do have the fear of God put back into our lives, that we might learn some of the lessons from the failure of Israel, and instead be the people who uh, continue in the kindness of God. So may we be people who do hold on to the life that we do have in Christ. Well, let's pray that God will help us to do that. Amen. Father, we do thank you for this word which reminds us again of your character, that you're a holy God, that you did much to save your people and they forsook you. Father, we thank you that you call us to have life with you and that life is in Christ and Father we pray that you would help us to persevere in this difficult age where we still live in a fallen world and we long for your renewed kingdom to come Father we pray that you would help us to continue remembering that in Christ we have a saviour and that one day we will be saved and that times will change and the troubles of this age will be past. Father, thank you for giving us life. Help us to persevere in it. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.